Gen X Playback, episode number 29. Welcome to the Gen X Playback Show, your favorite show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are the Brothers High. I'm Scott. And I'm Sean. And we are joined by none other than Frankie Valley. Hey, in studio? Oh, yeah, I wish, yeah. Yeah. Still kicking at 89 years old, if you can believe it. But we want to give a shout out to the hometown of Frankie Valley, and that would be Newark, New Jersey, who is a part of the Gen X Playback Show. And we want to say thanks for listening and a rich musical history in the North Jersey area. Not necessarily Newark, but, uh, you know, right around there, Hoboken, there's uh, obviously Frank Sinatra comes to mind. But there's a, there's a very rich musical history that comes from the North Jersey area. Right. And I did see the movie Jersey Boys, which is the life story of Frankie Valli in the, the Four Seasons, and um, so it gave me a little bit of a taste for that era. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's that, that's a good movie. I, I highly recommend it to people. So I think we talked about this in one of our other bit. episodes. Yeah, we about, did, talked about it. About how Joe Pesci yeah. recommended uh, Frankie being a part of what became the Four Seasons. Mm-hmm. I just thought, that Joe Pesci, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, I wasn't aware of it until I saw the movie. Yes. And then Pesci, you know, there's a reference. I mean, the, well, you know, the one character is Joe Pesci. And I remember being kind of surprised by that. Yeah. And, and Pesci was trying to make it as a performer, a musical singer, before he even thought about acting. Really, he didn't come onto the acting scene until Raging Bull. That's what he's most known for okay. uh, coming onto the scene. That wasn't until 1980. So we're talking late 50s uh, with Frankie Valley uh, going to the Four Seasons. And it was obviously a great. Um, joining a great marriage between between uh, singers and performers ended up going to the rock and roll hall of fame frankie had a nice resurgence here when this song came out greece when the when the recording was done he was actually 42 years old so that was was it 78 78 yeah yeah and he was born in 1926 i think no, not twenty six. I'd make him ninety well, something years old. And we, we've we've 36. mentioned well, we've mentioned in other episodes, you know, kind of when they would run the commercials for those bands, mm-hmm. right? And they would do the compilation albums, and that's where I knew Frankie Valley from. That was a that was a big commercial. That, that was a rotation for, a lot. There were there were two, we talked about in our just our last episode in uh, musical comebacks, and you had mentioned Creedence Clearwater Revival and John Fogerty, but that Creedence Greatest Hits album. That ran on commercials a long time. For years, they they showed that Creedence Clearwater Revival Greatest Hits mm-hmm. kind of compilation. But didn't they, they do that with the Four they Seasons? They did, and that was another one that really stands out to me, that they had a long run on TV commercials for uh, you know promoting a, like a Greatest Hits album. So, right. Um, but if you, have, if you don't have it, if you want to uh, download any uh, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons Music, I highly recommend it. That I have the greatest hits compilation, and there's there's probably a good 15, 20 songs on there that that you'll remember. And sometimes, and we've talked about this before with with um, other episodes and and singers, is that some of their 
popular songs kind of go by the wayside over the years. Like maybe it didn't go to number one, but maybe it went to like number 12. And some of my favorite songs from artists didn't actually go all the way to number one. And those kind of disappear over time. And you, you, as, as fans of music, you want to try and bring them back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so it's always cool to, to go through like a, like a compilation or even to go through albums and say, I remember that song on the radio. Why don't we ever hear it again? Right. And that was what was kind of neat about the Jersey boy movie. Now, that being said, you played Greece. Mm-hmm. I remember that I, in, in the, the, like the summer of 1978, um, I remember that being kind of a big deal. Maybe it was even into 79. You heard that on the radio a lot. And I, I did know who Frankie Valley was from sure. those commercials. But I remember thinking that that was a really cool song. Yeah. And, and Grease was a huge movie. As, and if you can only imagine with Saturday Night Fever coming out in 1977, and then Grease comes out a year later, uh, you know, who didn't know John Travolta at the time? But... Uh, just the movie itself, Greece, was just a nice fun, and it showed that America was still into. You had Happy Days mm-hmm. out there. You had Sha Na Na. That revival music was still really popular, and even though there were a lot of newer songs on that soundtrack, one of the best-selling soundtracks of all time, there's a lot of old stuff in there that uh, you know people still love. And that song. Though it was a new song in 1978, sounds like it would have fit when the movie was shot back in the 50s. Yeah, and that song was written by Barry Gibb as a as a favor to uh, Robert Stigwood, who was formerly a music manager, and then he decided to go into uh, movie making. And fortunately, he came out with Saturday Night Fever, which was a major smash, and then came back with Grease, which was another major smash. Unfortunately, in 1979, he was a part of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, which had the BJ's in very prominently, and that kind of was the, um, the the accident that crashed the House of Cards. Which which we did talk about in the uh, episode four of the comebacks um, with Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart mm-hmm. Club band movie, which was had a lot of hype. And I, I remember, and I know this isn't an episode about that. We, we kind of going off on a tangent <laughs> oh, here. That's fine. But I do remember um, that, that the Bee Gees are actually going out and going on the talk show circuit okay. and talking about it. And, you know, I saw a bit of a, a, of a documentary recently on the Bee Gees. Which and, one? Uh, it was the one that was on CNN, whatever. Oh, oh okay. Um, I forget. I forget. It was like, what, what was the, one of the early hits that they had, like back in the early 70s? Who can mend a broken heart? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah that was that, that was, was the early, name of the documentary. That was early seventies, and yeah. that's, um, yeah, that was one of their. That's been covered. That song, how can, how do you mend a broken yeah. heart, has been covered like it's like up in Guinness for like among the highest, you know, most times it's been covered by other artists, right? Uh, in recording, and so I think that was the documentary, and they talked about it in the in the movie that um, Morris liked to he like flashing badges and things like that and i remember they were on a talk show and it it i don't know if it was a major one i mean it was like a Merv griffin or it was uh you know something like that it could have been tom snyder who knows <laughs> but i remember he literally flashed the badge and it had like sergeant peppers so <laughs> it was like he, it was the official badge of the sergeant peppers lonely, uh, lonely heart club band or whatever you know the one, the one thing i will Real quick, and the one thing I always appreciate about the Bee Gees is that I they had a very kind of down to earth 
look back on their retrospective of their careers. Like they were very honest about when things were going great. They were very honest about when things were going bad. And I always thought Morris was a great interview. Like he just, he was a very upfront, you know, when he, when he talked about when he did drugs and when he, when he was having issues with that, you know, he's just very upfront about it. And I, I just think that's a very refreshing way for an artist to kind of look back and say, Hey, you know, this, this was my life. This was my career. And I, I think they really owned up to whatever over time. Right. So I, I did not know that Barry wrote that song. Yes. And now that you say that, I kind of hear, you can hear it. The, yeah. The Barry Gibbs sound. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So shout out to, um, Frankie Valley and Newark, New Jersey. Thanks for being a part of the Gen X playback show. And so we had our little, little rant that we usually do in the first couple of minutes of our show. But we want to talk about, and we touched on it in, um, in the last episode when we, when we came to the end of The Wedding Singer, is we talked about there's this mythical mixtape mix that I had made way back in 1982. I was a little kid. I had just turned 11 years old. And this is back in the day when buying tapes or records, well, at first, when I first started getting into music, I would buy 45s or even an album. Mm-hmm. So you're still buying things on vinyl. Yeah, the year before, in 1981, I bought your Christmas present. It was Rick James, Street Songs, Correct. and that was on vinyl. Correct. Well, that really started to change from 1981 to 1982. You really started to see more of these cassette tapes becoming popular and, and being used more. I think I actually got my first Walkman in 82, maybe 83, but right around that time. It was it was definitely when I was in eighth grade. Okay. I remember that you had it, and it was not cheap. No. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk about was, you know, the cost of technology back then, even though cassettes were relatively inexpensive, the equipment that you played them on, sometimes it got really expensive. And I just kind of want to give kind of a little retrospective here very quickly about the history of the mixtape. How did the mixtape come into play? And so it all goes back to, uh, like I said, 1982. I just turned 11 years old. So we're talking right around July, right around this time um, you know, of the year. And I was really starting to fall in love with music. Now, MTV was still yet to come in our house. We were familiar with it, but it was still something that was kind of out there. It was less than a year old at that point in July of 1982. It launched in August of 1981. So it was just coming up on its one-year anniversary. So it was still very much in its infancy. Right. But it was starting to create a buzz. And I was really starting to get into music as a 10, 11-year-old, like where I was kind of becoming kind of obsessed with, you know, certain listening to the radio and something that started around that time that had carried over with me for many, many years was... I used to fall asleep with the radio on mm-hmm. and I used to do that all the time. And I started to do that right around this time as, as a preteen. And so I really started to fall in love with music. I, there was a candy store that was down the street from, from where we grew up. It used to be called Cricks mm-hmm. and then it became Petra's varieties. And I would go there every week because on my, on our paper route that I inherited from you, you inherited from Lori that I got to spend about a dollar a week. Which, if you played your cards right, you could make that dollar stretch pretty far at a, at a candy store back in 1981, 1982. So I used to go down there, and Petra, she was this old German lady, and she's very nice. Uh, and she would come out, and I would, you know, get a little penny candy here, penny candy there. 
yeah, I'll take a pack of baseball cards. You know, I used to buy those too, but she used to have on, on her display counter, she had this little sheet and it was printed out by FM 97, which was our local top 40 radio station. And it was their top 97. It was the top 97 from FM 97. And it had a listing of 97 songs on there. That is basically like the billboard hot 100. And she had it on there and you could take one free and you could take it home. And I remember taking that every week and I started to follow groups like, um, one of the first ones that, that stands out in my mind was Steve Winwood's while you see it or not. Yeah. While sure. you see a chance yeah. that would have been like 81 ish, the pointer sisters, uh, with he's so shy. We were talking like 1981. So I just started to get into it, but then we were still transitioning from the vinyl to the cassette tapes. All right. Our dad had these tape recorders. You remember he used to record that, you know, dad was, had some technology. Well, we had, they were the, they were the one speaker, mm-hmm. the old fashioned tape recorders where you would have had the microphone that you would like plug in and could extend. Right. And then some of the tape recorders actually had a um, microphone built, built into in, it, right. which is what it became commonly uh, known as. But what, what dad and his friends used to do, like when we would go up to the cabin and his hunting buddies, the mountain raiders, the mountain raiders were, were back in the day were pretty musical guys. And one thing that, that dad used to do when we would go up there is he would, when they would go up there and they start playing their guitars and singing and, and doing their thing, he would record it. I don't know if you remember that. Sure. Uh, so he would run the, he would just record it just straight from the beginning to the end. And it would, it would have everything in there from including Raymond Burkholder's jokes, somebody telling a, you know, a yeah. funny joke or a bad joke or somebody, you know, uh, farting or, you know, it's, it was all in there. And they would go back and they would play these like first thing in the morning, like to get guys up, to get them out in the woods. And I was, it kind of made an impression on me because from, I became fascinated with microphones and recording to the point where I started recording my own, like I would talk into the microphone or I would I never, you don't know this. So I'm con- uh, confessing this for the first time. Sure. It's just you and so, I in the room here. Scott. That's right. So one of the first albums I ever bought was the Commodore's Midnight Magic. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I do not look like Lionel Richie. I certainly don't sound like Lionel Richie, but there was a tape out there at one point of me singing along to still uh, trying to, uh, you know, Lionel's given it his all in there. Sure. And so is 10 year old Scott as well. How'd that duet turn out? Not too good. Oh. Not too good. Do you still have it? No, no. <laughs> Fortunately, a lot of these cassette tapes uh, did not make make it for posterity because, as we learned over time, is cassette tapes are not forever. Yeah, and unfortunately, they're not, they're not made to last forever. Because Scott had, you know, we've talked about that years ago that Scott and I used to uh, do sporting events, and uh, we had the the privilege of doing one of the most famous uh, state championship football games in the history of Pennsylvania football. Yes. Um, and the tape was great. I know we listened to it forever. We listened, you know, playing back. And then one day you told me it was cooked. It got ruined. Um, I had bought, literally bought a cassette tape holder, a box. And instead of keeping it in the plastic, the individual holder, in this cassette box, you could take them out so you could store more tapes. And then it had, it had a cover, you know, it was insulated. The only thing is that it got wet and all the 
all the cushioning that was on the inside basically disintegrated into the tapes and it ate the tapes mm. themselves. So, so that famous overtime win by Mannheim Central over Pine Richland is just gone forever. Double, double overtime. Well, you know, it's on PCN. I think they show that. Every yeah, but once it's in not a while. our voices. It's uh, Jed Donahue. Yeah, Jed Donahue. Everyone. Uh, anyway, all right. So I think one of the reasons why I really started to get into recording is we would see these commercials on TV for KTEL. Remember KTEL? Mm-hmm. Obviously, KTEL was a big, big influence in compilations. They were called by Forbes recently. They were called the Spotify of the 1970s. Oh, I can believe that. Because if you wanted to buy anything that was essentially a compilation record, you bought it on KTEL. They, they, it was a company that was founded in Canada, and it has ties to Ronco. Remember Ronco mm-hmm. Knives and Ronco Peel? And that, that family got started through the KTEL you know, family of businesses. Okay. So there's a connection there because the, I think his name's Ronald Kives was the founder of KTEL. He made a name for himself as a salesman on the Atlantic City boardwalk and would sell things to people as they walked by. So anyway. Okay. But at one point, KTEL in 1981 did something like $170 million in revenue, which um, was they were the number one record company at, at the time. And they were just putting out these compilation uh, albums for for people to listen to. And they were great. You know, I think Lori had a bunch of them. And we didn't, you and I still hadn't gotten into that yet. But what was the, what do you think was the problem or what would have been the problem to you uh, as to a KTEL album and why a mixtape probably made better sense? Well, I mean, you're kind of at the mercy of KTEL's mix that they're coming up with. So, but you're talking a compilation of just that one artist or of, of multiple artists? Multiple artists, yeah. Yeah, I kind of vaguely remember that. I don't know. Your favorite song wouldn't be on there. They, they might pick something that, that you didn't care for. I mean, usually the KTEL albums were very good. I, I actually watched a YouTube compilation of KTEL commercials. And it's like, oh, wow. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good mix. There was one that... It was called Dancing, and it had, this would have been like 1980, 1981-ish. So it had like Cool and the Gang Celebration on. It had Diana Ross on it. It had um, uh, the Daz Band was on there. So Ray Parker Jr. So, I mean, it had some good, it's like I could, I listened to the songs. I'm like, yeah, I liked every one that they okay. advertised on the commercial. But I, for me, it was like, Usually by the time you got your hands on a compilation album like that, I think at that point, those songs were pretty much coming off the charts. Yeah, and you did kind of say that back then, what was old was old, that that we were moving on. And, and you're right, by the time it would have been pressed, because uh, it's a lot of time would have passed because... Yeah. You know, the artists had their albums out there. Right. And they probably, there was I'm sure there was some type of, of, of licensing agreement with KTEL and the artist where they, you know, they weren't just producing these albums, you know, rogue, where they, but they probably had to wait until they left the charts. Yeah, and KTEL still does compilation downloads. They're still around, which I thought was very interesting. So if you ever go onto like uh, YouTube or, or iTunes or Spotify, there's a chance that you, especially on iTunes, that you could find downloads available through KTEL compilation uh, I guess you call them CDs, but okay. they're basically download comps. 
And they said that, uh, you know, in the research that they still do over 200,000 units a year, (laughs) which I think is pretty impressive for a company that started uh, from nothing in in 1961. So So you are saying that this whole mixtape thing kind of solved that problem? I think so, because uh, what's what's funny is my first that I started making these mixtapes was on dad's crappy tape recorder. Now, how were you doing it back then? Were you holding the mic up to the radio? You held the, 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 the tape recorder up to the radio itself. You held itself. the tape recorder itself, not the, not the extendable mic. I, at the time, we, he had a tape recorder that did not require the mic. So he had the, it had the microphone, little microphone that was built in. Okay. And I, I think part of the reasons why it took off so well is when you're, when you're thinking back in 1980, 1981, people were still carrying around transistor radios. People were still listening to AM radio. So I think sound quality wasn't necessarily at a premium. Like it wasn't the be all end all. Like you, oh man, you, you, I wouldn't listen to that. That sounds like garbage. You know, they wanted to hear the song and that was pretty much it. If it sounded like it was played on, on an AM radio station, it's going to have that muffled sound to it. And I think that's what those early mixtapes that I started doing, that's certainly what they sounded like because I'm literally holding a microphone up. We had this big giant uh, stereo in our living room. And fortunately, we were able to get the, uh, the radio stations from Philadelphia and I'm going to talk about that particular radio station here in, in just a moment, but you would literally sit there because the, for some reason, the antenna on that stereo was better than some of the other smaller radios that we had, because you could get it and you could get it fairly clear. If you had the dial turned just to the right spot, sometimes you had to kind of play with it a little bit because you get a little bit of that static and then it's like, Oh, it's gold. It comes in nice and clear. And then you keep it there and you hope that you don't lose uh, you know, they lose that clear signal for, for just a moment. Right. And when Scott says that we had a big stereo, we had a big stereo. Not that it was, you know, uh, a hi-fi system, but it was um, something that was popular in Lancaster County. I don't know if it was popular in other areas, but it was this huge chest where the, it, it was a, it was a big box and, you know, it kind of looked like a, how you have the chest freezers. In a way, that's how this thing was. There was a lid on it. it. It was long. It had the speakers built into the sides. It looked like a piece of furniture. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. It looked like a piece of furniture. It was bigger. It was higher than a coffee table. But in a way, you would stick it up against the wall, uh, you know, like a chest of drawers or something would have. And it kind of was to blend in with your your living room. I think that's where most people in the area had them. Mm-hmm. It was in the living room. It, it had an area built inside this box for the records to hold the records. Right. Um, and yeah, you're right. It had, the, had a turntable and it had a radio. And as far as sound quality goes, I mean, it wasn't bad, you know, as long, if you had, but if you had a decent needle or, but as far as the speakers themselves go, it, it had a very bassy sound to it, you know, compared to some of the speakers that I have now. I mean, there's no comparison. I mean, it was not even, it, it was, it sounded like it was small speakers, but it was this big, big piece of wooden furniture mm-hmm. that the the record player was concealed and the radio was concealed inside. You had to lift the top. Right. It was. It looked like, like you had said, it looked like a dresser. Uh, you know, from the from the backside, it looked like a dresser. But you can still see them on on you know for sale around a Facebook Marketplace and things like that. But I used to sit there and 
with the little tape recorder and I would sit next to the speaker. And uh, many of you that are listening to, to the show know what the whole routine was. Yeah, you're, the DJ's talking and you're like, just shut up, shut up, shut up. And then what you have to do is you have to hit record just as it's coming out or as the song's coming out. And you're not necessarily going to know what the song is. You're just hoping that it's going to be a song that you like. And if it's a song that you didn't like, or maybe a song that you already had on there, the nice thing about cassette tapes was you could stop it, go back, sure. and then record over it. Now, unfortunately, that would kind of hurt the integrity of the sound itself. Like, the more you recorded over something, eventually it would just sound garbled. Um, but you would sit there and you would try and catch it. And uh, for me, the radio station in 1982 was Hot Hits 98 uh, WCAU out of Philadelphia. It is now uh, 98.1, which is the actual frequency. But the Hot Hits format was was created and it actually became a national thing. It was, was very big in this area. So it actually bled over into a TV show that you and I used to watch uh, every day after school was uh, Dancing on Air. Absolutely. I found out that Dancing on Air was actually partially financed by Doc Severinsen. Philadelphia's Dancing on Air. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because not too long after it debuted in Philadelphia, it got picked up in L.A., um, but Doc Severinsen was actually a financial backer. It got picked up, the fee coming out of Philadelphia? Yes. But they didn't have a separate one in L.A.? No, they did not have an L.A. show. It was the Philadelphia show. Okay. WPHL. Kind of like a, a, a later version of American Bandstand. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to give a shout-out because I listen to these DJs religiously every single day, and they were some of my favorites. So I'm just going to throw out uh, six names that, that really stood out to me. It was Bill Burke. Bill O'Brien, Rich Hawkins, Christy Springfield. Christy Springfield, sure. The Motormouth, Terry Young. That was my favorite. And Glenn Kalina. Yeah, I like the Motormouth. Yeah. And then uh, shortly after 1982, the morning show became hosted by a guy by the name of Paul Barsky that you you listeners of Philadelphia know very well. He has kind of drifted in and out of Philly radio for probably the last 30, 40 years. So uh, Barsky in the morning was, was big, but that wasn't until 1984. But this, we're talking 1982 here. And it was, uh, it was a great time to be a young kid and just starting to get into music. Um, so when we go through this, there's 14 songs on, on this mixtape that I somehow was able to, to find. Uh, I, I made a CD of it um, probably about 20 years ago. I burned it onto a CD because I was able to remember the order in which the songs were played. So I was able to do that, and from that, I was able to recreate it on this Spotify playlist. So when you recorded your mixtape back in 82, yes, it was lying on the floor next to the stereo mm-hmm. with, the, with the detached tape player. Yes. So you weren't, it wasn't the build-in, like you had a boombox and you're recording it? That came later. Okay. I, I remember I, you doing a lot of that. I bought my first boombox, and I even found it and wrote it down. It's a Sony... CFS 45. I bought that in the the uh, December of 1982 with my Christmas tape. Because yeah, it would have been it would have been right about this time, yeah. a few months later. Because I, I I as as Sean knows, you know, I'm somebody who will kind of get into something a little bit technology, you know, technologically wise, and I always like, well, how, how can I tweak it? How can I improve it? So 
I started making these mixtapes and then I thought to myself, well, I mean, they're good, but they don't sound too good. You know, it's like, how can I make it sound better? Well, then the whole thing about dubbing started to come into existence where you can actually get the radio station on, on a, on the same unit, whether it's a stereo or a boom box, or I even had, here's a, a Rhapsody personal cassette player, RY 47, which I owned. Uh, because you had a Walkman, I wanted the same thing. I, so, I remember the Rhapsody, sure. And it had its own little fake leather cover that went around it. And I had that thing for a long time. And you could actually record music off the radio with that one, too. So when you recorded this mixtape, which we are going to get to hear yes. at some point, um, and I don't think I've heard this in you know 35 years or so, but did, how long did it take you to do it? Were you... Just one magical night where you just sat there and it was everything in a row, or did this take a, a, a few days? I'm going to say it took about a week. Okay. Because obviously you're at the mercy of everything that's around you. You're at the mercy of the DJ. You're at the mercy of mom in the kitchen. You're at the mercy of Dutch's, our dog, barking in the background. <laughs> she did that so, a lot. Yeah. So, you know, you would be right in the middle. Of, I mean, and it would be almost at the end of the song, and I'll hear this in the background. You're like, oh, man. And then you have to rewind it. And get it right to the spot of where the song before it ended. And then you had to you know, hope that the next song would become available. Which is why I went back onto the Billboard charts this week. And I just wanted to see where they all stood. And you can kind of tell where I had to go back. Okay. Because it's like I was going pretty good. It was like number six, number seven, number eight, number one, number 25. And it's just like it just goes to show that because the, the Hot Hits format was they played the top 20 pretty much straight through, and then they would start over again. So if you if you missed it, you had to wait till the next go-around, and then you could try and play it again. Depending on if the DJ felt particularly chatty, like you could never record during Terry Young's shift because Terry was notorious for talking right up to the first words of the song. Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody like a Bill O'Brien or a Christy Springfield would kind of like get out of there and let the song build up to the to the opening lyrics. You kind of learn those things over the years. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it was, as as the technology kind of grew, and even cassette tape quality started to get better too. I mean, when, uh, I remember dad buying our tapes at Kmart, and they were a Kmart label. I was going to say, they were, they were a Kmart brand. And I, I, I just kind of went through some of, the, some of the cassette brands that I started to buy after, the, after Kmart. You know, you started to see TDK. Mm-hmm. TDK was a big one. Sony cassette tapes. Maxell was a big one. JVC. Probably for me, the the most, the one I probably purchased the most personally with my own money was probably Memorex. And I think a lot of it had to do with that TV commercial. Well, I was going to ask you. With Ella Fitzgerald. That. Do you remember that one? No. Well, yes. Where she breaks the glass? Yes. Is it live or is it Memorex? Yes. That was their slogan for like 15 years. Well, what was the one where the guy was sitting in the chair? Oh, and the and the the sound so it was vivid that it's blowing his hair back, and it's like then he has like a drink that slides back into yes. his hand because of the, the the force of the sound that came a little bit later. But the the elephants, I think, was I that Maxell? Oh uh, yeah, that was or no, that was that was Memorex. That uh, was Memorex. Okay, yeah, it was alive or is it Memorex? Yeah, and the um, the elephants Gerald commercial that was filmed in the seventies, um, but it had a long long run because. It was it's it was a great commercial. It's very memorable. We're gonna have to do that sometime. Uh, you know your favorite commercials okay. over the years. But 
you know, is where she is singing and she's doing the doo 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 and she hits this note and it breaks a glass. So then they they secretly recorded it on a Memorex cassette tape and then played it back. And so they're based on the recording, the Memorex recording, it still broke the glass, which, you know, makes you wonder, is it live or is it Memorex? That was just a great commercial, great marketing strategy. Right, right. So, uh, you know, you're basically telling us there's a lot of work went into this thing. A lot where, of work. Where, you know, and I, not to be a bunch of grumpy old men sitting <laughs> here as, as we talk about, you know, just the differences. And, you know, I think what has changed somewhat is that in the with the world that we are in today, with the internet specifically, we're in such a when I want it, I want it, right? And there's there's no anticipation. Where, you know, back at this time when you're talking about this was not I push one button and I'm going to get these songs and I can just, you know, I can go into Spotify and just create a playlist. Like, right. You know, I'll create a playlist here for a show after I have my list and I can bang that out quickly. So we, you know, we jokingly talked about it in the last episode where I had said that I was, I would not give the tape away. Like nobody would, I wouldn't give it to anybody. And that our older sister, Lori's friends, we went to the beach the one summer shortly after this, because these songs were still on the charts and they're like, Hey Scott, we want to borrow that. We want to borrow that cassette tape. And I, and I always used to say, I'm I'll play it for you. And part of it was I wanted to hang out with the older kids, but part of it was, as I'm describing here, I put a lot of work into this thing. It wasn't, it wasn't just something that I snapped together in an afternoon. It was like these, these 14 songs were done extremely hard. I didn't make them or sing them or write them, but uh, you know, the fact that, that you had to jump a lot of hurdles to get this, this tape completely together. And you didn't want someone to say, oops, sorry, kid, and kind of rub your head and say, Sorry about that. Yeah, I broke it or or it just vanishes. Yeah. So, all right. So, in um, I I recorded this, like I said, right around my birthday, which would have been uh, early July 1982. And so I, I had a little bit more time that I could put into this because we're out of school. Uh, you know, at that, at that point, um, I'm doing a paper out, but that's not till the afternoon. So I can kind of hang around and I could spend time on this. But I do remember... Right, I did a lot of this right around dinner time, before and after dinner. I would do a lot of these recordings, and I remember actually shushing mom the one time because I was, <laughs> I, I knew because I knew the song that was coming on next. She wanted to talk to you and ask about your dad, right? And she she was doing she was like banging pots and pans oh. in the kitchen, and I remember shushing her, and she was not too happy about that. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, but hopefully this brings back some good memories for for anybody that's put the mixtape together, especially back in the day. Because like I said, once I started, once I bought that Sony boombox, then the recording became so much easier and the sound quality was better too. But I think just the fact that, uh, you know, I just, I sat there by this, the stereo as a kid with another tape recorder. And I probably in, this is a 60 minute cassette tape. I think I probably put like, 30 hours into into finally getting a decent enough recording of each one that that it would carry over so well that that's definitely um a mark of how different you and i are because i never would have invested that <laughs> I, I i probably would have given up after 
the first time the DJ would have talked over a song or the first time the dog barked, I, I would have just quit. <laughs> well, she she barked a lot. <laughs> yeah, she did. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so let's get into, so we're going to go side A. Okay. And so, I, I haven't heard this in a long time, so this is fresh for me. All right. So this is the summer of 1982. Uh, so it's seven, seven on side A and seven on side B. Actually, the, the last two songs on side B, they weren't. They were kind of tossed in there right at the very end. Okay. Um, like I wasn't as intent on, but one of those actually ended up being being a song I really enjoyed an awful lot. But I think when you're talking about the hot hits format, it was very up tempo, and you'll you'll hear that in this playlist, and that that they they did not they focused on it was like like a dance dancing type music dance mm-hmm. club music. So, but uh, I'm excited. Song, Let's go. Song number one. Of course, this is Supergroup Asia. And these guys were, when this album came out, these guys were a big deal. A huge deal. And so much so that I talked about the pre-MTV era. Uh, This was one of the few videos on this playlist that I actually saw. Okay. And I remember it being played, and I, I wish I could remember what show it was, but I remember watching this particular music video, and that... Those of you that have seen this video, it's that con- it's the continuous TV screens that are constantly changing the uh, the, the picture. And I just remember sitting there going, "Wow, this is really cool." But Asia itself was a combination of, of a few groups, and these guys were considered wonderful, top of the game musicians. And this album didn't disappoint. I mean, it was Asia in our area was extremely popular. They were, and it, it was, I think, in the early days of MTV, this this was kind of a, a band that they got behind and really promoted. And Because you're right, it came from, let's see if I can remember the super groups that it came from. I mean, obviously, there was Carl Palmer from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Howe from Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, uh, the guy from The Buggles. <laughs> <laughs> Was uh, and I'd always been in Yes as well. I forget his name. It was the keyboardist. Yes. Um, and then uh, Greg, uh, whatever his name was, the lead singer, bass player. I'm not sure. He was in one of those bands as well. Yeah. King Crimson. I think yeah, it was King, King Crimson. Crimson. Yes. Yeah. 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 But this was this was a heavily promoted album. It was, and I, I kind of remember um, hearing some talk about that not too long ago, where you know. The record companies knew that they could get behind this group because they were they they had a fan base, a built-in fan base that they were all bringing to the table. So, as you said, there was a video, and I'm pretty sure Godlene Cream made the video. It, okay, you know, it, back in the early days of yeah. MTV, they were they were one of the bigger named uh, directors, and it was something that i remember hearing a lot of that summer i mean that that was one of the biggest songs and the biggest bands of that summer yeah and arguably of of the songs that are on my playlist for this mixtape that was probably at this particular time was probably my favorite song 
that's probably why I had it on, you know, song one side a, that's because that was probably the first one I was looking for. And it, it wouldn't surprise, cause I really, really did like this song, but you'll, as, as you'll listen to the rest of them, it get it stays good. So I'm not going to, we're not going to fall off a cliff here. It, actually, this song, the next song by this artist is. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I need to correct myself. So I actually looked it up. That was John Wetton, who was the lead singer, okay, uh, the, the, and the bass player. Okay. Song number two. So this is an, I think, an easy one. Sure. As he was known back then, it was John Cougar, now John Mellencamp. But this is the song that made him a star. Oh, it was. Uh, he had a he had a couple of hit songs prior to this, but it was "Hurt So Good" that that really catapulted him. And "American Fool" was one of the best-selling albums of that year. And John Cougar was a cool dude; still is to this day. So when I I hear this song. I, I'm taking right back to junior high school. Okay. I mean, this this was one of the biggest songs that you would hear played, you know, from the kids. And it, John Cougar was around. I mean, it, he, you know, Ain't Even Done With The Night was a song I was familiar with. But when American Fool hit, and this was kind of the lead single yep. off of, of American Fool, John Cougar suddenly became kind of a household name, whether he wanted it to be a household <laughs> name or not. And consider how successful the song was this is 1982 two years later and we talked about the musical freight train that was the 1980s where a song it was a year away a year past it was done two years later it actually gets brought back and is featured prominently in the movie footloose okay and it was on the soundtrack so it kind of had yet another slight resurgence uh, two years later 1984 at a time when music was just coming at you just in waves so it just goes to show how how prolific this song was that came out two different times on the 80s stations that you listen to is this song played a lot i mean jack and diane absolutely yeah this still gets played a lot okay yeah this is i guess you could say this is probably john mellencamp's you know one of his most important songs that he that he came out with us within his career. Well, it was important to him because, as he tells the story, he was about ready to get dropped by the record label. He had one more chance, yeah. and then he came out with American Fool. And he, as he tells the story, he laughs and he's like, "Ha ha! Can't get rid of me! Yep. Can't get rid of me!" Yeah, it became became a joke uh, for him because they also wanted him to make lineup changes with his band too, and he wasn't wasn't about doing that. So, yeah, credit the guy for for staying true to himself, and it worked. Yeah, you know, doesn't work very often, but for him it did. Right. No, that's a good one. Yeah. All right. Song number three. Stops, nobody knows. 
This is the great Steve Miller, one of Sean's musical comebacks in the uh, previous episode, our four-parter. But it, it just goes to show that um, as a part of this collective mixtape that I put together, uh, just as much energy and for a guy who had disappeared for a number of years, he really came back strong with, with a song that was every bit as good as what's on this list. And, you know, I'd have to go back and listen to that episode, but I'm pretty sure when we talk about this song, I mentioned that it was on your mixtape. Yes. Yeah, I don't think you brought it up. I think I brought it up. So that shows, you know, kind of the, uh, the popularity of the tape and what was happening at the time. Yeah. And what I, I like about what you've done here, and that's kind of why I wanted to ask kind of like how you recorded it, whether you just listened to the DJ and, let, and just took, the, took the, the words of the DJ out and just let it play in order, or you put it together. Because I can tell that it has, it has a logical progression here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I, like I said, I, I think you can kind of tell the songs that I was really into at that time. Because they seem to hit. Now, there's going to be songs on part on on side B, and I'll I'll bring them up. That they kind of got ruined the first few times I tried to record. But for the most part, this is like this is in the order of which I'm like into music at that time. There's a similar tempo. Yeah. With what's happening here, and which is kind of what you would do with a mixtape, right? Right. So, you know, I I don't know if you labeled this mixtape any more than just 1982 or however. How did you mark it back in the day? Do you remember? I, Honestly, I don't even think I had it marked for the longest time. Uh, and then I ended up writing 1982 on it. Okay. And that's what, how I ended up uh, labeling my CD was I just put 1982 on it. So you would get that sort of thing, Gen Xers, as you remember, when you would make your mixtapes, you would label them. You would give it, so, you would give it something. It could be, and I'm remembering the, uh, the movie As Good As It Gets with mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson, where he had everything labeled, like yes. in his case as he was getting ready to drive. And, you know, it would you know, be driving music or... You know, when you wonder music, when there's nothing to talk about, or you know, is that sort of thing. So, you would have certain tapes for certain moods. You know, you might have a workout tape. Uh, you know that we talk about. We talked about that when I think I played the music um, uh, for Survivor, mm-hmm. where you know that I remember you know doing push-ups to that because that was part of my mixtape that I made to work out to. Yeah, and and now as we both were fans of of heavy metal music, that I tended to work out to that. Pro, you know more than anything else between i would say you know heavy metal and probably run dmc i was gonna say i remember hearing a lot of run dmc yeah. i mean those uh, but it had it had to have a little bit more edge to it than probably something that was on this but this was something i could listen to pretty much all the time sure yeah all right so that was number three abracadabra by the steve miller band song number four i what i remember about the mixtape was that i didn't quite nail it I, there's just a little bit of the of the uh jingle coming into the song and i just remember it saying 98 now and then <laughs> and then we go into the song ah toto One thing I remember about 
as a kid and when they would talk about the band Toto is they would always rave about how good they were as musicians mm-hmm. and they, they were, were just known as, as the best of the best and when you go back and listen to some of these older songs you think how tight these guys are it's it's you appreciate them a little bit more than just hearing the song for the first time as a kid and liking it right and I kind of wish that you could have recreated that uh, 98 Now <laughs> intro because while I'm sure you worked really hard to get rid of it when you're recording it's those little bits it's the little misses that you kind of remember because I remember I would listen to tapes and if I really liked a tape uh, I'd wear it out uh-huh. and you'd you get little dead spots to this day when there's certain songs come on the radio if I hear it I like anticipate the little dead uh-huh. spot yeah I think that was on my Pyromania tape. Uh, yeah. It had a dead spot in it, and you knew exactly where it was coming. <laughs> but, um, yeah, this is Rosanna by Toto. And uh, these guys were winning Grammys by the boatload at this particular point. Unfortunately, I think I think for Toto, the, the MTV era was not kind to them because as great as they were as musicians, I think there was just they didn't fit the part as, as, as the look went. They still had hit songs. They had some success afterwards, but not where they were at this point. At this point, they were still pretty much on top of the game. Well, they were. I mean, they, you know, they were one of the, you know, at, at that summer, the summer of 82, I mean, they, they were probably one of the po- most popular bands around. Right. Uh, I don't know about the world, but certainly in America. Yeah. They, they were an incredibly hugely popular band. And, you know, they still tour. They're still out there. You know, Steve Lukather, who you, you heard singing there and, uh, you know, playing guitar is still kind of keeping the band alive and out there on the road. And, you know, a lot of respect to them. I mean, they they were, a lot of people out there probably know this, but they basically were the musicians on the Thriller album. Right, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, uh, I think Quincy Jones used them a lot. He, they used those, uh, those guys on a lot of albums that he that he produced. I, there's, a, there's an artist that Quincy Jones produced. I think there were some guys from Toto that played on this album that's going to be played in a little bit. So I'll, I'll get to that. But that was my number four song, which so far you're seeing Asia, John Mellencamp, Steve Miller, Toto. That would take a little bit of a, of a swing. And it, to me, this is kind of the great aspect of that era, the 1982-1983, because you kind of go from uh, just kind of like straightforward pop, even borderline rock, and now all of a sudden, now you're getting into R&B. I was an 11 year old kid. I didn't understand the <laughs> lyrics at all, but I love this song. I'm in love, I'm in love with the other woman. My life was fine, fine. till she blew my mind. Oh, shucks. <laughs> I'm just average. I'm just picturing you at 11 singing these lyrics. <laughs> I love this song. Yeah, well, I knew all the words too. It's Ray Parker. Yep, Ray Parker Jr. Ray Parker Jr. previously with the band Radio, which was basically him. Sure. He had hit songs like Jack and Jill. Um, a highly sought-after session uh, guitarist. Sure. I think his first his first tour was at the age of like 17 with Stevie Wonder when uh, Stevie started touring in the early 70s. He got plucked out of, I think he was in Chicago at the time, and somebody that was new, Stevie Wonder, heard him play, and he's like, 
you want to tour with Stevie Wonder? He's like, what do you think? And that's how that's how his career got started. But at this point, he's a pretty pretty well fully established uh, solo artist, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he, he he had another follow up song from this, uh, but this was this is a pretty cool song. I mean, it, it's got a great great beat to it. I mean, it's got a great musical swing to it. I, it's one of, I still love hearing the uh, the music to it, even to this day. Oh, I agree. And, you know, you talk about Ray Parker Jr. being a great guitar player, and it it has that kind of little harder rock kind of edge to it, even though he would have been more of an R&B, R&B artist. Sure. And But that's kind of what I like about this era. There's a bit of crossover with that. Where you would you would get a little bit of the guitar sound because that's what was popular. What I remember about Ray performing this song, Solid Gold. Yep. Yeah. And Ray Parker Jr. performed this song on Solid Gold without a microphone and without anything plugged into his guitar. And I'm like, how's he doing that? <laughs> uh, and at one point, it, I think it's on YouTube. If you want to YouTube it, check it out. But at one point, he's lip syncing to the song, and he. At the at the part where he goes makes me want to play my guitar mm-hmm. and and he makes this look he makes this face like you gotta be kidding me like this <laughs> <laughs> this is so bad um, it just it just kind of made me crack up all over again because I remember him doing that on Solid Gold which was one of those shows you had to watch if you didn't have MTV which was us back right then so I tell you a little Ray Parker Jr. story is I was watching. Um, that series that I've told you about, about Sunset Sound Studio, where they were talking to the, uh, uh, the, the one lady that was always there in the recordings with Prince. And, you know, Prince was an artist that played his own, every instrument by himself, and he produced his own albums. So the, the record company was a little concerned that he had too much power. And they weren't sure in the early days, you know, this is before he'd established himself, like with 1999. I think it might have been during the recording of that album. Okay. And so he kind of, he got this autonomy and they were unsure if this was going to amount to anything. There's a big investment with this kid and they're afraid that there isn't a producer to supervise him. So they sent Ray Parker Jr. down okay. to check up on him. Okay. And I guess after one session, he went back and said, hey, he's fine. He'll be okay. (laughs) Well, that was literally was a make or break for Prince. If that album had failed, he was done. But think about what a big deal Ray Parker Jr. was. Right. That he was the guy that the studio sent down to check up on him. Yeah. At that point, he'd been in the music business for over 10 years, yet was still young enough that I'm sure a guy like Prince wouldn't be standoffish to him. He would not have suspected that that's why he was there. Right. Yeah, so oh, I mean that's that's <laughs> he also you know he also wrote you make me feel like dancing for Leo Sayer, did he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he said I made Leo a lot of money. <laughs> it, you know he was he uh, Ray is featured kind of prominently um, in the Netflix documentary on Yacht Rock. Oh, all right. So well, I, I have yet to watch that. So I need I, to watch that. Yeah, and but, of course he's well, you know, best known for Ghostbusters. And he's he's a funny guy. I mean, when you, when you listen to him interviewed, very candid, great sense of humor. Yeah, he doesn't take himself too seriously. I, I just think it's. I just think yeah, he tells really good stories. Good storyteller. So that was my number five song on the uh, summer of nineteen eighty two mixtape. Number six is the slowest song on this tape. But it was a big song when it came out. It was. We walked the lonely 
we smile without any style we kiss all together wrong no intention we lie about each other's dreams we live without each other Of course, this is the Motels, Only the Lonely. And like I said, this is the slowest song that's on the tape. I think it might have been the slowest song that they were playing on the radio at that time. Could have been. On that channel. But that's a good song. It's a great song. Yeah, Mar- Martha Davis of the Motels, she was gaining a lot of traction at the time. It's amazing that she, her career didn't take off more. Yeah, and part of it was she stayed loyal to the sound of the group. She didn't branch off and do anything solo because she was offered solo contracts and she decided to stay with the motels um and at this time i know i've I've talked about the kind of the la sound Mm -hmm. i think they were one of the defining groups of the la sound they were extremely important because uh you know music at that time we're not yet into the second british invasion and so you're going from like 1979, My Sharona by the Knack. Mm-hmm. So now this, these L.A. bands are starting to get some popularity. Uh, but by 1982, there's a, this song, this group, when the Motels came out, they just had a little bit more of a different swagger to them, a different sound. Uh, you know, they incorporated saxophones, and it wasn't just guitar-driven. And it, it was more, I guess there was a little bit more of a music quality, musicality to it than maybe some of the other groups that were coming out at that at that particular time. But I remember uh, critics looked at this very favorably back then. I, I would have said it was very stylish. You yeah, know, that's a good example. Both both in sound and in package. You know, the way they presented the band, it, it was, you know, had a very polished L.A. feel to it. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely did. And I think they did a lot for, uh, you know, think about it, for the bands coming out after the motels, like, Huey Lewis in the news is one that just kind of jumps out to me that they, although they didn't have a sound that was identical to the motels, but they kind of had a, I would say a California sound Mm -hmm. that really helped catapult them to greater success than, than, um, you know, if the motels and motels had a successful album after this one, uh, suddenly last summer. Sure. I remember that was good. That was promoted a lot on MTV. And at that point, when that album came out, we did have MTV, mm-hmm. so we saw them. We saw the music video for that. But like I said, um, Hurt So Good, Ab- Abracadabra, Rosanna, The Other Woman, Only the Lonely. I At this point, I'd never seen their music videos, where after MTV, after we get it in our house, I would certainly have seen all these videos right. as I'm hearing the songs for the first time. Yeah, because as you're playing that, that song, you know, my mind goes immediately back to the video and, and, you know, it's kind of a bar scene and it's, you know, club scene. And it, it is to me, that sound epitomizes 1982. Yeah. There's no doubt if you had played that song and say, Hey Sean, guess what year I would not have come up with 1982. 100% would have come up with that. Yeah. So that was my number six song, only the lonely by the motels, the number seven song by a very famous group. And they actually did a cover. (laughs) 
And they played that at the beginning on, on Hot Hits. This is a live version of the Rolling Stones that go into a go-go. I love this version, too. As I asked you in that episode when we talked about this mixtape, I said, is that go into a go-go on it? Because I, I remember you playing this. This is a song that probably doesn't get played much anymore. I don't. I haven't heard this song probably since the last time I played my mixtape. There was a, there was a video for this. There was. That yeah, was a live version. Mm-hmm. Well, it started out with the video, kind of you see mix, but walking into a go-go. Right. And what also stands out to me about this song is I didn't know it was a cover at the time. I, I, I didn't know who Smokey Robinson and the Miracles were. I didn't know who Smokey Robinson... I mean, Smokey Robinson, I knew Smokey Robinson from Being With You, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because that was coming out the year before this. But I didn't know this was a cover song. I just thought it was the Rolling Stones, and I knew who the Rolling Stones were. But uh, you know, "Start Me Up" was yet to was yet to come out, and you know, get even bigger. That's the Stones. Well, that's I. I like the fact that we have a song that isn't really on a lot of people's radar anymore. I yeah. And and I I remember that was a big hit. As I said, it, it was it was certainly played on the uh, the the, uh, the top forty stations yeah. quite a bit. And it the Stones had a nice little run going on there. You know, they they had a bit of a dry spell kind of in the seventies. Then they came back, you know, with a whole tattoo of you. And this was all part of that wave. You know, it's, it's funny, and maybe it's in part because you don't get to hear it very often, but on uh, on Sirius XM, Classic Rewind, they were playing Undercover the Night. Yep. I like that song. Yep. I, I actually like you know, some of the songs off of that album. I, I think it's a very underappreciated Stones album. It's one that doesn't get revisited very often. And isn't, what does Mick play in that video? He's, he's like a detective, <laughs> or he's a, he's a police officer, well, he's, he's solving a crime. He was, he was a bad guy. He was, I think he played a couple characters in okay. that one. Because because Mick was uh, Mick Jagger played two characters in the video. Yeah, that's uh, what I'm saying Mick. One was like a yeah, and um, Keith Richards was was a a guy uh, out for vengeance, and he got to carry around a machine gun. They said that's why he loved shooting the video so much, is he got to carry around a gun. Um, but yeah, it was it, there was a whole story behind it. I think it was a drug deal gone bad. Really? Kind of thing. I think I was Keith whole- Richards involved in a drug deal. Huh. <laughs> Well, Imagine that. So that was the end of side A. Uh, going to a go-go by the Rolling Stones. <laughs> 